G'day friends of the show, thanks for listening to Ideas Digest. If you would like to show your support, head over to ideasdigest.org, sign up, become a plus subscriber, you'll get access to exclusive content, or you can just buy us a coffee. Won't buy coffee with it, but I'll use it for other things to keep the show going. Thanks for your support, enjoy the episode. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity that other human being to who they really are and in the marketplace of ideas these things are complicated man we all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints a genuine multicultural connection with another i mean sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree you just need to sit with it and digest g'day and welcome back everybody to another episode of the ideas digest podcast where we build Bridges between worldviews at war. That's a new one I'm testing out. Boy, there's a lot of worldviews battling it out. And uh, we're going to try to build some bridges. They may cop a Molotov cocktail every now and then, but we're going to try anyway. My name's Conrad. New friends of the show, welcome. Regular friends, welcome back. Someone asked me as I go around and people go, hey, Conrad, oh, what are you doing? And I go, oh, yeah, I just quit my job. Oh, really? What are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm podcasting at the moment. And they say, oh, really? You're a, you're a podcaster. What's it about? And I have to like kind of pitch it and try and make it as appealing as possible, which is kind of what I do every week on this episode anyway. And one person said, as I explained it to them, yeah, you know, we break down challenging ideas. And he goes, oh, hmm. So you're like a metaphorical idea hat for the open-minded i was like <laughs> i was like oh, i guess i guess so so if you have an open mind and you want to try on someone's idea hat maybe it fits maybe you keep it on maybe you take it off and it's not for you either way i don't know it, it seemed like an all right oh we'll see if i'll stick with it or not but without waiting any further let me introduce returning friend of the show Keith Giles, welcome back to Ideas Digest. Oh, Conrad, thank you so much. It's an honor to be uh, to be back on the podcast and excited to talk about uh, this topic. Yes. Uh, so, refresher for people, Keith. Let's say, obviously, you and I haven't spoken for a couple of years, and let's say, oh, which part of America you're in the middle somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, I'm in uh, Texas. I'm in El Paso, Texas. Oh, Texas, that's right. Now all my judgments are flooding back. I'm like, Texas, okay. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and let's say, I don't know, Texas. Do you guys have an Applebee's in Texas? Oh, are you kidding? Yes, it's <laughs> probably one of the most popular places here in El Paso. I'm no kidding. My wife, Wendy, and I, every time we drive by it, we will, we will just be in awe of like how the parking lot at Applebee's is always packed. I don't care what time of the day. Or what day of the week? I'm like, what are they serving in there? How? Why is Applebee's so popular? I really, I still to this day, I don't know what's going on in there, but uh, it's really popular. So on one of these days, then Keith, you drive past, you drive in, and you go, yeah, I'm gonna check this out, and then we we see each other, and I walk up and go, Keith, I haven't seen you in a long time. Give me a refresher. Where do I know you from? Who are you? What do you do? Let's refresh uh, the friends of the show who might go, that's eh, familiar, but give me a refresher. I am a uh, former pastor, licensed and ordained many years ago, like 30-something years ago, originally a Southern Baptist denomination, and then um, then my wife and I started a vineyard uh, church for a while in Southern California, and then we walked away from that after three and a half years, and we started a little uh, fellowship, sort of a house church community that was together for about 11 years, and our vision during that time was we um, uh, we were a church that gave everything away. We didn't have a senior pastor. I wasn't, there was no senior pastor. We, we joked that it was Jesus 
Jesus was our senior pastor. And um, yeah, we did that for 11 years. We gave all the offering away to the poor to help people in the community who are in need. And it was an amazing experience. And that was sort of the beginning of my deconstruction process. And fast forward now, like um, over the last five years, I published seven books in a seven-part series called the Jesus Un series that have done really well. I'm a full-time author now, podcaster slash teacher, etc. And um, and I have a brand new book that's coming out uh, in June uh, 2022 that I'm really excited about. Okay. So, and I guess that's some, somewhat what brings you here, but before we get to that, we heard a little bit about you. Okay. Pastor deconstructed. We said these buzzwords, these trigger words. And last time I judged you, obviously you're in Texas, plenty to shoot from with the hip on Texas, pun intended. Uh, but we won't do it again. There's no point. We've already judged you. Friends of the show can go back. And I got them off my chest. We now know each other a bit better. But I feel like we got to level the playing field. Keith, do you have any judgments about me? You know, maybe when we first met, maybe a bit of a refresher. You can confess them to me. It's a safe space. I can <laughs> confirm or deny them. Go for your life. I don't know. I think, honestly, I don't think I have any, like, negative <clears throat> judgments about you. I think... Uh, I, I, my impression of you is you seem like a really um, inquisitive person. You seem really happy, <clears throat> and um, I mean, I don't, I don't, at least I've never encountered you or watched any any of the episodes where I felt like you were especially like bothered or upset, or, you know, by something. Maybe I just haven't seen the right episodes. <laughs> but you come across uh, like somebody who, uh, you know, you're you're loving your life and you're really happy, and so that seems really great. Great. Social media is doing its charm. Every, my life is perfect, everybody. Check out my Instagram. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we can just project We project to the world what we want them to see. That is exactly right. Okay. Now that I know my social medias are working and we've, you know, we've, <laughs> we've got our assumptions off our chest. Now, Keith, I'm in the, I'm in the Texas car yard and you know, you're, you're writing books, but you're a bit sick of it. And you're selling, you're selling ideas in this car yard. I'm looking around and instead of cars, I'm buying new concepts, like something that can make me happier. You know, my Instagram looks good, Keith, but guess what? It's all a lie. I'm not that happy. I'm not that happy-go-lucky. I need something to fulfill me. I run into you, Keith. You're actually an idea salesman. What, what are you selling to me today? You know, you've written a book. If, I'm gonna, if you were to come up and go, Conrad, I've, I've got something for you. You should try this. What... What would that concept be? Maybe friends of the show listening, you're like, I'm going to introduce you to a new concept. What would that be? Okay, well, I think um, that's a, gr- a great way to frame that question, by the way. I love that question. I think what I would say is maybe two things. <clears throat> one, no one knows anything, so don't stress out about getting, all, getting it all right and getting all the right answers. And, um, and then the second thing would be... Um, be your own guru. Don't, don't follow anybody else. Don't like, oh, even me, please, especially me. Don't be like, oh, I believe this because Keith believes this, or I heard Keith say this, or anybody, you know, Brad Jerzak, Brian Zahn, Richard Rohr, yeah, you know, anybody. These are great people. They're some of these, they're friends. I love these guys. But at the end of the day, it's just you and God and the universe. And so you had better figure out what your relationship is to God and the universe and everybody else for yourself. Um, because really at the end of the day, that's all you got. Okay. Right. I know nothing. <laughs> you come up to the car yard, you're like, Conrad, you don't know anything. Just relax. There's no stress. 
You That's will right. you will work it out. Okay, un- unpack that. Unpack that whole idea for me. So I'm I'm thinking I come across it. You say, Conrad, you don't really know anything. I might I might respond and go, What are you talking about? Like I'm I'm 33 years old. I've read a lot of books. Like my theology is pretty solid. I've I've read. I've done my own research on Google, Keith. You don't understand how much googling I've done <laughs> to come to my conclusions oh, yeah. about things. What do you mean? I don't know anything. Right. And yeah, that's, that's fair. I mean, <clears throat> I can, I can definitely see people pushing back on that. Like, come on, Keith. Yeah, of course we know stuff. I know stuff. But, um, yeah. Well, I mean, I have a quote at the beginning of the book, um, from Socrates, who is one of my favorite philosophers. I love Socrates. And he, he's got this beautiful quote where he says, the only true wisdom is in knowing that you know nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think what that is all about for me and, and what I'm trying to get at in the book is that <clears throat> we have to have a measure of humility but I would say specifically and especially because this is my realm. This is what, you know, I write books. Like I said, I just wrote a seven-part series, uh, the Jesus Un series. It's all about theology and doctrine and, and all this kind of stuff, trying to help people make sense of their theology. But here's the thing that I've come to realize in this whole world of theology is that so many of us would acknowledge, like if I said, you know, God is beyond comprehension. God mm. is beyond knowing. God is a being that is indefinable, ineffable, you know, I mean, who we can't wrap our brains around any, even one aspect of God's godness, right? And, and everybody who, who's, who's, you know, especially a Christian, you study theology, you would say, amen. But then what I see happening in practice is all these same theologians saying, now let me tell you what God is like. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, huh? I mean, when you're talking about theology, you're talking about a being of whom by definition, none of us really truly comprehends fully anyway anything. We might have a, a bit of information. And so that's I, I, kinda, I kinda try to turn it around in the book a little bit to say, you know, rather than talk to me about what you think you know about God, which really is pretty much nothing. Um, but instead, why don't we sit down and think about um, all of the things we don't know about God? Because God, by definition, is this ultimate mystery. And I think, for me anyway, I think being drawn into that mystery is more interesting. Not, again, to get answers and information to say, okay, now I know something. Um, But to more experience, have the experience of God, um, rather than sort of informational um, ideas about God. Hmm. So when you going through church and pastoring and you're around, let's say, the Christian world, the evangelical world, that's often what you hear. Oh, God is beyond comprehension. We can't know God. And it sounds like what you're saying is you've got the words right, but there's something about how we've constructed what mainline Protestantism, Catholicism, Christianity in general, like there's something about it where we've, where what, we're not taking that seriously because when I look at it, we seem to know a damn lot about God. We know he um, saves in this particular way. We know how we should act and live. We know who is in and who is out. We know uh, even, you know, some churches, the one I come from, it's like, we know, Keith, exactly when Jesus is coming back, how he's coming back. We're like, we know so much. Oh, but he's not comprehensible. Is that kind of what you're getting at? No, you're exactly right. See, and it's uh, it's noticing. I, I mean, I've grown up my whole life almost in church, 
And, um, and yeah, I, I've seen that kind of thing so often. Um, I may have even said this once when I was here last time, but um, there's this thing about how, like, um, you know, like there's this phrase about how um, the funny thing about my worldviews and my, even my religious views is that no matter how many times they change, I'm always right. Mm, yeah. And that seems to be, I mean, in my own, yeah, even in my own deconstruction process, I've noticed that about myself. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to believe in this, but when I believed it, guess what? I, I was right. I mean, I was pretty sure I was right. But then, oh, no, I did some reading and studying, and then, oh, I changed my mind, and now I'm right. And then I argue that and defend that and tell people they're stupid and wrong because they don't believe this thing because now I got it right. And then I get embarrassed because, like, five or six years later, I go, oh, Oh, well, sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. I changed my mind. I don't believe that. Now, now I believe this, but guess what? Now I'm right. And that attitude that no matter how many times I change my mind, I'm always right is sort of, um, I mean, it's a real egocentric thing to do, right? It's very narcissistic. It's like, I'm always right. But so, but if you look at it the other way, this, this is what's, here's what's really happening. I was wrong before. I'm probably wrong about some things right now. I mean, chances are. And that means I'm going to be wrong about a few things in the future. So if I acknowledge that I've been wrong before, I could be wrong right now about some stuff, and I'm going to be wrong in the future, then I should hold pretty loosely um, to these beliefs. I shouldn't argue about them. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have... So I, I've been working with people for the last couple of years um, who are going through deconstruction. I started this thing called Square One. And I walk with them through their, help them go through their deconstruction process and help them figure out, navigate their own reconstruction process. Whatever that looks like, I don't tell them what that is. I have no idea what that could look like. It's different for everybody. But I try to help them move along and that process. But the first thing I tell them, like week one, week two of this process, I encourage them to, in all of your deconstruction of your theology, deconstruct your need to be right. You will have so much more peace and if you will let go of your need to prove that you're right and everybody else is wrong, for, for the reasons I just said, right? Because you've been wrong before. Uh, in fact, I would say, again, this is why, like, if you're, as you're deconstructing your theology, um, I mean, I think most of us, ha I have anyway, I've experienced, what I've experienced, the pain I've experienced in my deconstruction process has been from people who, who were insisting that they were right and I was wrong. Okay, and so do I now want to be somebody like them who is inflicting pain on other people because I'm beating them up because they don't agree with me? See, when you do that, you make yourself the the um, the standard for all truth in the universe, right? Um, there, there's a there's a I mentioned this in the book. There's a George Carlin, who's a comedian. There's this joke he does where he says, "Have you noticed how people on the freeway, if someone's driving slower than you, they're a moron." But if they're driving faster than you, they're insane. Well, we all do that. But what are we doing when we do that? What we're saying is, well, whatever, I, however I'm driving, that's normal. That's what a, a rational, sane person would do. It doesn't matter how fast or how slow I'm driving. In my mind, this is sane and normal. Therefore, anybody who's a little bit slower than me, they're a moron. And anybody who's like way ahead of me, oh, they're insane. We play that game with our beliefs. We play that game with, in, in the world, right? We judge everybody that way. But what we do when we do that is what we're ultimately saying, we don't realize this, but what we're saying is, I am the, I am the standard for all truth in the universe. Whatever I'm doing is correct, yeah. is right. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's not like me is wrong. Mm -hmm. 
that is not the way to approach our life or other people, and it's certainly the wrong way to approach theology. And in my book, that's what I'm trying to get us to realize is this, this, this is the way we do approach theology, and it's, it's messed up, and it causes a lot of problems for ourselves and I think for the world around us. So you're pitching this idea of intellectual humility, which is holding a mirror up and saying, hey, can you honestly look back at your life and see how wrong you were? Now, what if we took that seriously and move and move forward? And you're specifically critiquing it in the realm of theology, which is very interesting. You mentioned deconstruction there. Now, people, I guess, to summarize deconstruction, do you want to give like a bit of a overview of what you're encountering with deconstruction? Because some people might have this word of like, okay, uh, have this idea of the word, which is you have a belief in God and then you realize it's, you know, all a scam. It's God's not even real. It can't be proven. Now I'm an atheist. That would be maybe a two-dimensional view of deconstruction. Is that the typical journey that you're talking about when you're engaging this idea of deconstruction? No, and great, great uh, question, and it's good to clarify that, yeah. So I think a lot of people who are not deconstructing, this is what I've noticed, people who are still kind of in the church system and still very set in their, and who are convinced they're, they're right, <clears throat> when people within their system start questioning and doubting their beliefs, um, that, that, is, that for me would be deconstruction at a very simple level. Deconstruction is just simply asking questions about the theology you were given, you were handed when you either were born into the church or you entered, you know, you became a Christian at some point. These are the doctrines people gave you, and at some point you're going, oh, is that true? Did God, did God really sacrifice himself to himself to save us from himself? Does that make sense? I don't know. Or, you know, stuff like that. <clears throat> so... Just asking that question is, to me, deconstruction. But now, the assumption, like you just said, I've noticed this, is that people assume, if they're not deconstructing, that anyone asking questions is basically, they're rejecting God, they're rejecting Christ, yeah. they're rejecting the Christian faith, and, um, and that's deconversion. Now, that can also happen, and it does happen. And sometimes people who begin decon deconstruction by just questioning this or that little doctrine eventually walk all the way out the door mm. and never come back. And that does happen. It can happen. Um, but it's not, they're not the same thing. And, mm. it, and I'll be really honest, when I started that Square One group two years ago, specifically to help people not walk out the door and, and leave uh, you know, God and, and Jesus behind, because I don't, I don't think that's necessary. Now, if they want to, I mean, that's up to them. But, um, but if they're struggling to hold on to, like, I'm questioning all these other things, but I don't want to let go of believing in God, and I really like Jesus, and I don't want to reject Jesus, then I would say, well, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And so I want to help you figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. you, you're talking about intellectual humility then in the face of deconstruction as you start to question things, and especially the need for intellectual humility when it comes to theology. Why? Why Why is it so important for the space of theology? I guess you've, you've outlined that theology brings all these certainties about what we will, at least in, in words, admit is unknowable, but then we have all these really rigid rules about what's right and what's wrong. Why, like, are you saying, it sounds like you're critiquing and heading towards saying, 
if we don't have intellectual humility about what we can know and don't know about God, is that bad or dangerous? Is that really what you're getting at? Well, no, I, I, in a way it is. Um, I mean, I think it's really easy to just look at, look at church history and the people who ended up torturing <clears throat> and, um, you know, killing um, other human beings throughout history who wore the name Christian did so because they were convinced they were right. So whether that was the, um, the Inquisition or that was the Crusades or, you know, all these other sort of horrific things that Christians have done throughout history, why did they do those things? Because they were convinced they were right. And who were they against? The people who had the wrong ideas. And so, again, it's just, yeah, it, it is dangerous. I think it's a dangerous way of thinking and, and believing. Um, again, especially when, this is what I tried to say to show in the book, I went way out of my way in the book to prove to, to readers that you really don't, <clears throat> excuse me, you really don't know anything. Not only about God, but about reality, about the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't trust what you see with your eyes, what you hear with your ears, your own memories, your own dreams. Like, all of these things are up for grabs. You really don't, you have no real ground for certainty at all. And again, and this is a point I make in the book, um, and others have made this point as well, but it, uh, it's really important to recognize that the opposite of faith isn't doubt. It's certainty. The minute you have certainty, and most Christians I've run into in my life, they are certain. They are totally certain. They have no doubts at all. And I want to say, well, that's not faith. I mean, good for you if you have no doubts at all. I think you probably should have a few more, uh, because if you had a few more doubts, then you again, you might approach some humility and say, I don't know. And, um, and if anything, I think that's what I encourage people to do who are going through deconstruction is don't move towards certainty, move towards that, that place where you're, you're comfortable with certainty that, and actually in some ways it would actually even bring you comfort to say, I don't know, because I'm dealing with a being, um, ultimately a being of, of love and a being of light and, um, that, that I get to have some kind of connection with in some mystical way. But yet I'm dealing with a being that I don't fully know. And that's intriguing. That should, you know, that should compel us. That should draw us deeper into that mystery. Convince me more that I don't, that, because you, you say, I don't have the real capabilities to even discern what reality is. Convince me more about that because I'm walking through my life. I'm like, Keith, I've got science. I'm looking at scientific experiments. I'm, I'm, I know that when I drop a rock, it falls off a building. What do you like? What do you mean that I don't know even what reality is? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, like I said, I go out of the way in my book to kind of uh, to show that. And so, I mean, on a simple level, <clears throat> it's really it's real simple. Like, I'll just say, let's talk about vision and let's talk about what we hear with our ears, and then we'll talk about our own memories, right? So I talk about these things in the book. So number one, we think that with our eyes, if, if we're not blind, if we don't have any vision problems, right? If our eyes are healthy, we think we see, fully see the world around us, reality, the way it is. But we don't. We know that, you know, the, the human eye has, what's, uh, has an ability to... Um, to perceive what we call visible light. And that is a very narrow spectrum of, of all available light in the universe, right? So we have this little narrow band that our eyes can see, red, orange, yellow, indigo, you know, blue, indigo, violet. But then on, on either side of that is 
uh, ultraviolet, infrared, x-rays, gamma rays, like it just, it extends out really, really far. And so even if you're sitting in the room, like if you have a dog or a cat and you're sitting in your room, your dog and your cat are seeing a reality that you're not even seeing, that you're incapable of actually uh, experiencing. That, so our, your vision is, our humanity's vision is very, very limited. We don't see the world as it really is. In this room, right now, there is more light available than we can perceive. Secondly, with, with, uh, it's the same thing with our ears, right? We know that the human ear can only hear within a certain narrow range of frequency. But we also know that there are high frequencies going on right now. We cannot hear. But, you know, dolphins and bats can hear them. Dogs can hear them. And, uh, and then there are low, infra, low frequencies, infrafrequencies, that whales and uh, tigers and other animals can, can hear and also create, that we're incapable of hearing. Mm. So again, we don't, right now in the universe, right, you just walked outside your door or walked up and down your street. You, you can see a little bit, you can hear a little bit, but there is stuff going on you are oblivious to, and all of us are. Mm-hmm. So that's just one level. And then when it gets to the level of memories, like our memories, I do this quite a lot. Um, well, I'll ask people, I'll say, think of a childhood memory, right? A good memory. Think of a happy memory when you were, when you were younger, right? And I don't know, it could be anything. You're playing with your friends, you're swimming in the, in, you know, in the summertime at the pool, you're riding your bike, whatever it is. But think of it. Or Christmas, maybe Christmas morning. I don't know. But, but seriously, think of a real memory from your actual childhood, right? So close your eyes see the memory, uh, experience it, really, really put yourself there in the memory, you know, pay attention to details, um, you know, temperature, sound, how other people around you, the weather, all that kind of stuff, right? So really, really, really focus on that memory, right? So now I want to ask you some questions about the memory that you just saw in your head. Mm-hmm. Most people, when they have a memory and they, were, they, were, they picture a memory, they relive a memory from their childhood, they see themselves in the memory. So, for example, if you, if you were riding a bike, you see your little self riding that bike down the sidewalk. But is that what happened? Were you standing outside your body with a, like sort of a, a video camera and you filmed yourself going down? No, that's not your memory. That's a movie that your brain made of that memory, that it made a, made a movie, and then it stored the movie, not the memory, in your, in your mind. Um, so if it was a true memory, it would be first person. You would see your hands on the handlebars. You'd see your feet on the pedals. Like, mm. You'd look. You'd turn your head and look around. You would see everything, but you wouldn't see yourself. But most people, now some people don't do that. There are some memories, like I have a, a childhood memory where it is first person. But most of my childhood memories are not first person. They are mm. third person. I see myself riding the bike. I see myself swimming at the pool. I see myself playing with my, my friends right outside. Um, and so again, your memories... What you think are your memories are not, first of all, not what really happened. And then uh, there's tons of research that has been done uh, where people have studied memory. I, I, I document this in the book, uh, where one, one memory expert said that, that human memory, our memories, she said, are like a Wikipedia page that we can edit, but so can other people. And she proved this in the study where they took groups of people where they, they were uh, either direction. They would either convince groups of people to, to believe that there was a childhood memory that happened to them that did, that did not happen. But they could convince like 80% of them, fully convince them that this memory was real. And then the other people, they could take a real memory that they really had and convince them that that was not, that it never happened. And so our, our memories are editable. 
Um, and then real quick, another another study on memory was really fascinating was they took uh, they took people when they were like kids, like eight or nine years old, brought them in, put them on a camera, and they asked them to tell tell me something that just happened to you, you know, this week. Some some memory, right? Something that happened. So they would describe an event that happened. Great. And then every year for like 10 years, they would bring the same person back and put them in front of a camera and ask them to remember that same event. And after 10 years, that description of that event had changed so much that when at the end of the 10 years, they said um, they showed them the first tape when they were when they were like eight or nine years old when they first had the memory. And they're like, well, that's not what happened because they now suddenly had edited the memory so many times over the 10 years. They had added people there that weren't there. They added things happened that didn't happen. But we all do this, right? Mm. So again, we can't really trust our own memory. I'm sorry to say. We can't, we can't even believe everything we see with our eyes or everything we hear with our ears. It's incomplete, right? Mm-hmm. It's incomplete information. And so there's way more than that. I know we have uh, other things we want to talk about, but yeah. um, I'm just trying to help us recognize we are not certain about yeah. so many things. And if we're not certain about that, what makes us think we're certain about God, right? I mean, that is ridiculous. If you don't even know yourself and your own experiences, your own memories and what you see with your own eye, what you hear with your own ears, you are not qualified to tell me or anybody else what you know for a fact about God. It it sounds like you are talking about this idea of deconstructing what we think we know about God because it's God's so unknowable. But it seems like it's built on you saying, and the reason why you can't know about God is because reality is so much bigger than you can really know. It sounds like you're deconstructing my capacity to know what reality is. And if I now walk through life questioning how I find like now I'm thinking about my memories and I'm like, and I've, I have noticed something like this. I'm like, did that happen? Was that there? I don't even, I don't know. My memories aren't, aren't great, but so, so I knew a long time ago that my memories weren't something to be relied on, but it sounds like you're deconstructing my faith in myself, Keith. Yeah. Now, now I'm, now I'm lost Keith in this void of, I know nothing. What what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to know what's what's morally right and morally true? And how am I ever supposed to know God? Now I truly am lost, Keith. Is this where you wanted to take me? No, no, no. I'm sorry. And I and I will say, excuse me. Um, like right now, I've got a my book. My book hasn't launched yet. Uh, hasn't published yet. So I've got a team of people reading the book. There's like a launch team. Yeah. So they're reading an advanced version of the book. And literally, I'm not kidding. Yesterday, this guy was messaging me like every 10 minutes and he was like having a meltdown. Like, like I even, at one point I stopped him and I said, man, I think maybe you should put this book down because he was like talking about, he was sweating. He was crying. He was laughing. He was laughing and crying and he didn't know why. And like, it was really like messing him up. And I'm like, dude, sorry, that's not my intention at all. Please don't put it down, walk away, take a, take a breath. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to finish the book. Like I, I don't want to like, um, create some sort of existential crisis mm-hmm. in people. So, uh, I apologize if, it, if that's, if that's the result, um, maybe because I should put a disclaimer like, on the book. It, it sounds <laughs> like when, like, yeah, that, cause there is, the, I suppose any form of deconstruction is a crisis of sorts because you have to let go of something you knew for certain that you thought reality was and allow room for the reality that someone else might be introducing that, that might be unfamiliar to you. And it sounds like you're, you're, 
pitching the need for this deconstruction of, because you're saying if we deconstruct from God to another form of certainty in something else, then in order to deconstruct that certainty or intellectual arrogance that we have in what we can know, we need to deconstruct our, our reliance on ourselves a little bit so we can hold things a little bit more loosely because, and that is a traumatic event to kind of go through depending who you are or, or where you're coming from because you have to let go of of probably some foundational things that, you know, maybe helped you through some tough times. Is Is this pain, Keith, better than the tyranny of certainty that we're coming from is is this what you would then say it's not it's not easy it's it's often traumatic and maybe don't go there if you if you're not quite ready for it or it haven't been led there naturally but it does sound like this is potentially a better alternative than i guess what we might hold it up next to which is that's you know religion at its worst this certain persecution machine that persecutes anyone that isn't itself. And I mean, it, it can happen politically now when I think about that construct that you put up there. It is, are you saying that this is maybe better than the alternative of certainty? Right. Well, and that's a good question. And I think, honestly, obvi- obviously, everyone has to determine for themselves what is quote unquote better. Um, because for some people, like maybe the guy who was reading <laughs> that the book, um, you know, we get a measure of comfort and, and safety and security, even if it's false, um, from convincing ourselves that we do have some foundation of certainty about certain things, right? Mm. And to be, to be told or to, to have someone show you that, well, really you don't, yeah, that can be terrifying. And so then your, your natural reaction might be to like reject that and run as hard as you can into the safety and security and wrap yourself in a warm blanket of, I just, uh, these illusions are so good. I just don't want to let go of them, right? <laughs> they make me happy. They make me feel good. Well then, okay, then maybe you need to hold on to it. I get to speak for myself, having gone through, you know, this deconstruction process myself, that um, for me, it's better. Like, uh, I think I even say something in the book about how, you know, don't settle for a glass of certainty when you could embrace the endless, you know, ocean of wonder and mystery. And drown. And for me, that's the... Well, no. <laughs> but not drown in a bad way. Maybe okay. drown, drown in a good, good way. way. Right. To, to lose yourself in, in the beautiful mystery of God and stuff. So, right. I mean, for me, that's better. I, I would much rather do that. And if, so I guess in some ways I'm, I'm learning how, and maybe for many of us, this is a process. It's mm. not... Um, and I think, again, going back to this, this reader of my book who was kind of freaking out, it was just a little, it's a little accelerated, you know, mm-hmm. maybe he's, it's too fast for him. And so for some of us, we get there by degrees and I'll be honest, I got there by degrees. I didn't go from zero to a thousand, right? Mm-hmm. I, I slowly deconstructed this view and that view and this view and that view. I went down this process, right? And then slowly I just kind of reached a place where I realized, well, you know, what do I know? And really... Am I fooling myself to tell myself that I do know I've got God figured out, that I put God in a box, right? I mean, that seems kind of ridiculous, right? There's a Richard Rohr quote I use in the book where he says, um, you know, God doesn't fit into our boxes, so we shouldn't waste so much time defending our boxes. And to me, that, but that is theology, right? That's what Christians debate over and argue over and sometimes fight and kill each other over, 
because they're stupid boxes. Mm. And but do you? We, but don't we recognize that God isn't in that box? Mm. Uh, even Saint Augustine, who's not one of my favorite people, but Saint Augustine said, um, "If you understand it, it's not God." So don't walk around like you do understand mm. it. You know. So what I here's what I try to do in the book, and I. I, 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 what's really helpful is actually Jesus does this. I think Jesus does a beautiful job of, of helping us switch our perspective when we come to our desire to know something, right? So I mentioned in the book about how I think human beings are wired for mystery. We love mysteries, right? We, uh, that's one of our favorite things, right? I got to know the answer. Was it Colonel Mustard in the, observ- you know, the, in the observatory with the candlestick or whatever, right? I, I want to know the answer to the question, right? Um, and so we can't help ourselves but to be drawn to that mystery. So we want to know, of course, right? It's, we can't help it. But Jesus does this really amazing thing where he talks about, he says in, in, the, it's in the Gospel of John, he says, um, this is eternal life to know God and his son. But what's really fascinating is that in, in the Greek, um, there's two words in the Greek for know. One of them is episteme, which is information and knowledge. That's not the word Jesus uses. So Jesus isn't saying, or your English translation, by the way, doesn't point this out to you, so I'm pointing this out. When Jesus says that eternal life is to know God, he's not talking about having the correct information about God. Because guess what? No one does. That's not what he's talking about. It's not having the right information about God or about Christ. But the other word in the Greek for knowing is um, the word, the same word that is used for how a man knows his wife, and she conceives and bears a child, right? So this sexual intimacy, which is a scandalous thing, actually. It's probably the reason why your English translation doesn't point this out. Because literally what Jesus is saying is eternal life is to have intercourse with God and with Christ. That's what it really means. I mean, that's what it would really say if you translated it as it's written. Um, but we've, we've uh, cleaned that up a little bit. But if we think about that, though, we want to know God, but the way we go about it typically about in theology to know God is information. I want the right information. And now if I've got the right information, and Conrad, you have different information than I do. You're a heretic, and you're wrong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn people you're a false teacher and all that. Why? Because it's all about having the right information. But that's, again, not what Jesus says. Jesus says eternal life is to gnosko God and Christ. That's to have an intimate connection and... and um, relationship with God in such a way that it conceives a new life within you. So it's not information, it's transformation. And that is what it's all about. And I really feel like we have been, I just speak for Christians in America, I don't know about Australia, but Christians in America and evangelicals uh, specifically have just gotten to this point where I think they really believe, or at least they really act like they believe that the gospel is about having the right information about God. They think it's about information. And I, I want to say, no, Jesus says it isn't about information at all. It's not episteme, it's gnosko. So we can know God. I would argue that we can know God. But, but, but that knowing of God and that knowing of Christ isn't information. It's not that I can pass a test correctly, hmm. right, a theological test. It's that I would say, do, I, do you know God? Oh, gosh, yes. Do you know Christ? Wow, do I. I really do. Yes. I, boy, what I'm saying, I have, a, I have a connection, a spiritual connection with Christ and with God. And that's the kind of knowing that we should be pursuing. And that's what I'm trying to help us 
uh, make that shift in my book, moving away from information, moving more into an experiential knowing of God. Mm-hmm. By breaking the very faculties with by which we collect our information <laughs> or knowing, I, I think I get there. And when you're talk when you're talking right now, and as I think of maybe fun like fundamentalists or conservative friends of the show listening, they they won't hear you say something that I think triggers this group a lot when you say okay this journey of deconstructing the very foundation on which i've stood for 30 years 40 years who who knows this is better and you say for me for me and and this is i think you know the political divide comes in here and and this is a massive divide the right hates that oh for you because I think when you say for you, you're saying, well, I'm not going to make any big claims here, but I'm just going to talk about me. So can you maybe convince the fundamentalist friend of the show that's listening saying, Keith, if it works for you and not for me, because I'm sitting here maybe saying, all right, certainty works for me and I need this. You're wrong because if you're saying it works for you, then it can't be universal truth, right? I think that's the tension we have is like, if you're not going to be bold and make this claim that it's true for everybody, I'm going to do that. I'm going to say it's true for everybody. And then it's universal. But if you step outside of that and say, well, it's true for me, you need to journey it with yourself and see what works for you. I might just judge you as just saying, well, it's not universal truth. It's not for everybody. He's just doing his own thing. And it's not this universal rule. Could you talk to me about your journey then and say, okay, how did you come to discover that it was the better way to go, to let go of these certain ideas? Because obviously you can engage in that what's universal truth or not debate that I think goes nowhere. But you can at least enter into it and say, okay, my journey into pulling apart the ground on which I stand intellectually and the ground on which I try and comprehend the infinite uh, is like I've got to pull that apart. What led you to that and how does it help you? Yeah. Well, I think that's the, 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 in the question, Conrad, is the key, that it's a process. I mean, the Keith Giles of 20 years ago would totally say to, to me right now, you're insane. <laughs> I don't need that. That isn't true for me. Because the me 20 years ago wasn't in a place where I was ready for that, right? So it is a process. It's a journey. That, and that's part of the reason why I can, I can say this is true for me because it's true for me now. I, it's taken me a while. I'm, all the experiences that I've had, all the things that I've processed to reach a place where I have concluded um, based on all of that, hey, you know what? I think this is really better. I mean, so, I mean, I could give some examples. I mean, I kind of already mentioned a few of them, but, you know, the, again, the pain of deconstruction that I went through was uh, because I had certainties in certain theologies that suddenly I realized were not so certain. And that was a really painful process of like taking a sledgehammer and beating the concrete, you know, and smashing what I thought were certainties into, into powder. And then the mistake I think is when you pour uh, a new, you know, layer of a foundation of concrete and then you let it dry because now you've got your new thing that you're right about. And then I, my experience was, yeah, in five or six years, guess what? I pull out the sledgehammer and I'm beating it off again. I'm, I'm smashing it and, 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 and that going through that painful process of breaking up this hardened belief system that I, the second one that I laid, right? And then for me to then say, well, what should I do next? 
I know, I'll lay in, I'll just pour some more concrete and let that harden, and then in five years, I'll go through the painful process of breaking that into pieces. At some point, I hope, again, you'd have to go through that process several times to reach the conclusion, hey, I know what's probably better is if I just let that cement stay soft. I don't let it harden. I just let it stay open-handed where um, I'll just let it be like, I think, I don't know, I believe. And then I'm open to, to having my mind changed without having to go through this horrible, painful deconstruction process. Like, so now I'm, I'm, I think I believe this and I think this is true so far. But what that does and that humility, it, it makes me open to hearing other people who disagree with me and not going, you're wrong. Because how do I know? <laughs> like, oh, let me hear you. And I can listen to what you have to say. And I don't have to accept it automatically. I can even, I can say, well, that's interesting. Maybe I'll mm -hmm. think about it. I'll put it on the shelf. I'll, you know, put it over here. Maybe I'll come back to it. Maybe eventually I'll even go, you know, that was a good idea. Maybe, maybe I will pull that in. But I don't let anything um, solidify to the point where I, f I reach a point where I feel like I am the center of all wisdom in the universe. I am the standard for everything. I have it all figured out. Because, again, I just, I don't think we do. I don't think I do. Um, I think we can value each other's experiences and listen to each other. And then what, it, what, what this also does is it allows me to have a relationship with somebody who maybe they, maybe they believe something that I used to believe 20 years ago. Okay, well, I, I understand where you're coming from. I know why you believe that. I could probably tell you exactly why you believe it because I believed it for the same reasons you believe it right now. So I understand that. I don't agree with it now, but that's okay, right? I, I, I don't have to reject you because... You, oh, yeah, you haven't moved on. This goes back to that analogy of you know, who's faster than you or who's slower than you on the freeway. Um, I can now encounter people on the freeway. They're driving slower than me. Yeah, I remember when I was first driving a car, I was, I was kind of slow too. Or I see a guy blowing by me, you know, 150 miles an hour. I go, yeah, I remember when I was a teenager, I used to drive really fast and on the freeway, I thought that was a lot of fun. Mm. Without judging them, right, wrong, good, bad. No, it's just, I've been all those things. Mm. I think we all have. And so it just gives us the, the freedom to not judge each other, not um, condemn each other. And again, I, I've, in my experience, it, it helps, really does help us to um, not always treat the other person as a them, like us and them. Mm. You know, the us is everybody that agrees with me. And then anyone that disagrees with me, oh, those people, right? Mm. That's also where the church gets into trouble. So when you're talking about breaking down what, what we can know and not, I guess, judging people because we've all been in different situations and I don't know where I'm going to end up in the future and I might have been where you are. And so I can have more space for other people and I can try not to judge them as much. A few of the, <clears throat> I feel like you sit in this interesting space that really piss off a lot of different groups because, and I'm going to, I'm just going to lay them all out there and you can take, take and pick and choose. But the people I'm hearing, friends of the show that are listening, that are going, Keith, if you say you don't judge people as if, like you have to, if you've thrown out all the moral code that the Bible gives you about how we should live and what we should do, you're now morally bankrupt. Like you have no standing on what's right and what's wrong because you're not allowed to judge anybody anymore. So Keith, I'm just going to go out and, and murder somebody. You know, that's the ex extreme of that because you've let go of all 
all certainty, Keith. So why not just go and kind of kill people? And then there's the a slightly different tact of a similar argument of the people that are not in the religious world, but they'll say to you, yeah, I totally agree. We can't know anything. And scientists know nothing as well. So when they're coming along with, you know, their modern medicine, they're trying to kill us, Keith. Like, I've done my Googling. I've looked up these facts for three hours. Like, right. you're right. We, I agree with you. You can't know everything. And I now know more than an astrophysicist or a microbiologist or all the, I don't know, these people because the system's out to, out to get you. And then the third person I'm thinking of is i suppose the atheist that will say to you i also agree with you keith um you're probably wrong like you know let's say we all are probably wrong but you're still using this god language why you're probably wrong about that why write a book about god at all i suppose so there's three kind of kind of groups you've got the fundamentalist that says you've got no moral compass anymore you've got the person who's deconstructed from the modern scientific way of knowing things on how we, the modern world is constructed. And then you got that third person who's maybe the atheist being like, you're probably wrong. Why bother with the God box at all? How do you take all of that? Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? So um, I guess, the, so I'll take him and I'll try to take him in order. Um, yeah. So we've got uh, the fundamentalist. I, I'm so, yeah. So I'm, I'm so, tired of that view. And again, I, I, I had that view, so I understand it. You know, I used to argue that when I was really into apologetics and stuff, that, that basically, you know, if you're an atheist, if you don't have Christianity and the Bible and the Ten Commandments, uh, what keeps you from being a rapist and a murderer? Yeah, you, can do you, you, you need yeah. this moral code. And um, I just think that's ridiculous. So <laughs> I just, I couldn't help but remember there's, there's a quote from, uh, and I can't, I can never get them straight. There's Penn and Teller, the comedian, the, the, um, Magicians, they do magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the the big guy. I, I think he's Penn. I'm not sure. I'll anyway, believe you, whichever, whichever one, you one of them. Yeah, whichever one it is. Penn. You can Google it. Um, <laughs> maybe your listeners know who I'm talking about. But uh, anyway, he's an atheist. He's, he's very famously an atheist. And he responded to that question by saying, no, no, you're wrong. Um, I rape as much as I want, which is zero. Which is zero. Uh, I murder as much as I want, which is mm-hmm. not at all. And so... The, the assumption that, oh, I mean, it's kind of scary, actually, to hear a Christian talk that way, because what it, what, that, what it seems like they're saying is, if it wasn't for the Ten Commandments in the Bible, I would be raping people left and right. I would just be killing people. Oh, I would be killing my neighbor. I kill my... Yeah, I mean, I would just be a murdering fiend. <laughs> what? Really? Because I don't... I hope not. And if you do, go get some therapy, because that's scary. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think most people deep down, they kind of, I mean, obviously, yeah, some people are mentally ill, they have problems. They, they, they do, you know, there are psychopaths and things like that, of course, but most people are not psychopaths. Most people, the average person, they know what's right and wrong. They know that, yeah, I I should do this. I shouldn't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, on one level, I think morality, we, we have some of it figured out. And most of us, if we don't get that, we'll get it from, our parents, as we're growing up, if we have good parents, right, that will teach us basic things of, you know. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't have any fear anyway um, that by talking this way or by uh, the things I'm writing about in my book, if somebody decided, yeah, I don't really know if I need um, to follow the Bible or something like that for truth or, or direction, 
that that's suddenly going to increase the murder rate or the raping the the rape uh you know crimes in 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 America or something so you know what i mean i i just i don't think that's the case okay um on the um so what was the second one so the the second one is the deconstructed from the modern way of knowing things you know science yes. and medicine like we, yes. you know, oh yeah, yeah. Flat Google's Earth. Pick, and the, yeah, pick the... your conspiracy. You know that's that's the argument. Yes. They agree with you, Keith. We can't know anything, but now I know. But don't they do the same thing? No, no. But see, the, but right there, see, they do the same thing. They say we can't know anything, but let me tell you what I know. Right. Okay. They're still very certain, right? Okay. They they know the Earth is flat, and they're going to prove it to you, right? Mm. So, uh, or they know that aliens are here, and they're going to prove it to you, or Sasquatch is real, and they're going to prove it to you. They don't have this, they don't have a humility about it. Like, well, you know, we can't really know anything. And maybe, I don't know. Like, But where's the line so, with humility, I suppose, for that question? It's like, Keith, should I be open-minded about, you know, the earth being flat? Do I have to remain open-minded about that? Do I have to remain open-minded about, you know, gravity or, or, or some of these scientific <laughs> concepts or the things we can know? Like, you know, where, how, how far do we go with this idea? Well, I mean, you shouldn't go so far as to, like, you know, jump off a building to test the gravity theory or something like that, right? Um, I mean, uh, on one level, I mean, don't we all do this anyway? I mean, I don't know about you. Um, I, when I first found out about the flat earth thing, I mean, I thought it was stupid. But you know what I did? I actually did go and watch some videos and I read some things. So, like, I, for that moment, I was open. I'm like, well, yeah. what do they got? What are they? Yeah. Where's this coming from? Got? And then when I looked at the evidence, quote unquote evidence, I said, oh, this is bullshit. This is stupid. <laughs> so I mean, we all we all have an ability. I hope on some level mm -hmm. to be open to hearing. I mean, I don't care what your crazy theory is. I'm sure, tell me what is it. I'm open. Mm -hmm. But then uh, on one level, then we have to go through. Uh, so I, I mentioned this in the book. Uh, Jim Palmer, uh, is a friend of mine, and uh, he he's the one that actually showed me this, and I think it's great. It's been very helpful um, because a lot of Christians are taught growing up that, that they can't trust themselves, you know, your heart is deceitful and wicked and all your thoughts are evil all the time and all this stuff. So they, they, they've been brainwashed into this idea that they cannot trust their own thoughts because that must be the devil, it's the enemy, you, you know, you can't trust yourself, right? So that's a very, it's a sad thing and that's something we have to deconstruct also is to reach a place where we realize that, oh no, you have the mind of Christ. You actually, you are able to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. You can discern those things. You, you are capable of that and I talk about that in the book too. But but Jim Palmer, uh, along those lines, talked about how there's three ways that everybody, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, everybody goes through these three sort of layers and steps to, to determine at least what they believe is true. Um, and that is direct experience, critical thinking, and self-reflection. And most of us go through that. We'll hear something, evaluate something. I'm having, a, having coffee with you and you throw out something that sounds a little crazy. I will almost instinctively compare what I hear you saying or what I'm reading or whatever to, uh, I'll, do, does that line up with my direct experience? I'll use some critical thinking. Could this be true or does this sound like bullshit? Or um, self-reflection. Have I found this to be true in my own life? Does that make sense with what I've had in my own uh, you know, life and things like that? And, uh, and I think most of us, now where we get into trouble is when we don't put, it, uh, put information through those layers. We go, we, we have... Um, like what I was saying at the beginning, this sort of guru mentality mm. that, oh, Joe Rogan says that. Well, I believe it. Yeah, because you're not, you, you're not going through the process of direct experience, critical thinking, and self-reflection to decide for yourself, 
Not because this other person says it, because you like them, you think you're, they're funny, or you like their podcasts, or you like their books, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you've made them a guru. You've, let, you've allowed them to do the thinking for you. And so that's part of the danger we have to be careful of. And I, by the way, I add a fourth layer to that. And again, in my own experience, I felt like it's important for me, in addition to those three things, there's a fourth thing which I call sort of like uh, community feedback, where mm-hmm. I, I try to surround myself with a, a core group of people that I really love and I believe they really love me and they, they want what's best for me. And I trust them and I trust their opinion. And um, they're just friends, right? But when I have a new idea about something, I will often go to them because I recognize, again, with humility in myself, that I am prone to having blind spots. Like, mm. there may be something that I just haven't thought about or thing, something about mm-hmm. this I haven't seen. And if I can go to another person, it's sort of like the speck in the eye, you know, kind of a thing. Mm. Like, hey, how does this look okay? Um, do, do, do I look all right? Do I have, do I have mm. some spinach in my teeth? Mm-hmm. I, I need that. I, so I, I try to have people in my life and I think that's an important layer for me to help me mm. understand things too. Like, am I am I off base here? And um, just check me on this, right? I'm glad you added that fourth layer because without it, when you say, like, do your own research, do your own critical thinking, <laughs> a, a lot yes. of, of what I'm coming across, you know, the ideas I'm exploring and, you know, like everyone will always say, do your own research. And the important, the thing that I think you're injecting in there that is a little bit different because I think it's not like everyone will agree, do your own research, but some friends of the show I've spoken to would say, but don't though, because you don't understand the scientific papers that you're quote unquote reading. You know, I've got an episode coming up with, I I did one on, um, uh, on the book, uh, the real Anthony Fauci. And we tried on the idea hat of where these how you can, you know, is, you know, Anthony Fauci the devil? Are these vaccines a global conspiracy? Uh-huh. Like, what's the best arguments? And, you know, uh, like, is there something in there? So, so we tried that yeah. on. And what I discovered when I was reading that book, Keith, was that, and I, and I said this in the podcast, is I can't fact check this guy. He sounds freaking smart. No. He's a lawyer. He's got his citations. He's got scientific papers that I can't read. And I noticed that what you put in there is like, do your own research, do your critical thinking, you know, don't be lazy on that behalf. But back to the top of the show, you can't know anything. So now I'm going to hold what I find more loosely than maybe someone who reads a few studies that they're not like necessarily done the university degrees to really get the most out of it. Um, Sure. I'm going to hold what I'm discovering a little bit more loosely Right. And it sounds like that's a crucial difference because now you're then saying, okay, well, if I really aren't sure about how I can know this completely after doing some critical thinking, maybe I'll go talk to some friends. Maybe I'll talk to yeah. you know, my uh, university lecturer about this or my friend who, who works in this industry to really continue, right. I suppose, that critical thinking, but hold myself lightly. Does that sound about right, the difference in what you're saying to what yes. is the main narrative? Yes, that's exactly right. And I also feel like in that process, we are often too quick to reach a conclusion uh, in that quote-unquote research phase. That research mm-hmm. phase for a lot of us is like maybe an hour of watching <laughs> YouTube videos. And then You're being generous. Uh, there you go. Uh, conclusion. <laughs> Here's the conclusion. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. I mean, I give it 20 uh, minutes. G- give yourself, I don't know, like I'm going to give myself a couple of years 
to just, mm. I'm going to do something. I'm going to read this, but I'm going to read that. I'm going to think about this, but I'm going to think about that. I'm going to talk to this person, but I'm not making up my mind yet. I'm, I'm still open. Again, that's like keeping that cement dry. And don't be so quick to make up your mind on something. You could, you could say at any given moment, um, I'm leaning this way, but, you know, I'm still looking. I haven't, I haven't made my mind yet. I'm still right. deciding. And again, because it's like we're so quick to jump to the certainty. But again, I would say why? And I know in theological circles, we are, we are quick to jump to certainty because we are convinced that that's what we have to be. We have to have answers. We've got to be certain. And if we're not certain, oh, no, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't think certainty is a good thing. I think it's actually a really, really bad thing for us as individuals. And it's certainly a bad thing for Christianity mm-hmm. uh, as a movement. It's, it's just been historically not a good thing. Bring me back then to this God space. And before we get to that third critic friend of the show who would say, you know, why, Keith, you're bothering writing this book about this God thing? And yeah. br- bring me, because obviously uh, I have read the book. Uh, congratulations to me. Excellent job, Thank Connor. you. Um, start. And yep. it, you obviously don't leave. You, you, really, you really break down the faculties. <laughs> and then obviously you, uh-huh. don't, you don't leave it there. And so you're opting for some form of reconstruction and it leans toward the God language. It leans towards that. Reconstruct me, Keith. You've, you've broken me. I can't really know (laughs) things. Uh, but you know what? I'm open to the journey. I'm open to continually trying, but holding what I can loosely reconstruct me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So where I try to go with it. And there is the annoyingly timed fade out. If you'd like to hear the rest of that conversation, you can head over to ideasdigest.org. There you can sign up to show support and you'll become a super friend of the show and receive bonus content and my gratitude forever. Thanks so much. Keith, thanks so much for taking so much time to chat with us today uh you're you have a new book coming out where can people find that eventually and uh Mm -hmm. your other stuff and stay in touch with you because i know you have a podcast as well yeah oh couple i've got like three four podcasts yeah oh so uh (laughs) yeah so the new book it's called sola mysterium uh the subtitle is celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything and uh, it's available on Amazon in uh, print and in Kindle. And eventually it'll be on audiobook as well. Oh, good. And uh, so, yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books um, yeah. or buy books online. And, uh, yeah, so you can follow me on my blog, which is keithgiles.com. That's on, my blog is on Pathios. Um, and, yeah, I do a couple of podcasts. So I co-host a podcast called Heretic Happy Hour. Um, I have a solo podcast called Second Cup with Keith which is a lot of fun. It's really just me, and I take one topic, and I just talk about it. It's, it's, it's a blast. Cool. And, uh, and I'd also co-host a podcast with, a, with one, of, one of the co-hosts from Heretic Happy Hour, Matthew DiStefano. He and I do another podcast together called Apostates Anonymous, and it is a blast. It is so much fun. We get to do, like, one of the things we started doing, we do fake commercials. We'll come up with ideas, and we'll, we'll create fake sponsors for our show, and we have so much fun uh, every, every episode debuting a new fake sponsor so it's a sponsor Spotify. yourself i like it i like yeah. it i think i need to start yeah. doing that i'll just start mid-rolling some ads for my own products <laughs> that i don't yeah, that's right. sell and now a word from our sponsor yeah here you go yeah <laughs> yeah keith thank you so much uh friends of the show thanks for tuning in if you want to send any any questions any ideas ideas digest at gmail.com you can hit us on instagram at ideas digest 
Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody, and I will catch you all in the next episode.